Welcome back to Church History. This is our last episode of the year and the last of our Christmas episodes. Over the month of December, we've taken a break from where we left off with our church history, the end of the Crusades and the beginning of the Inquisition, to have a little more of a happy podcast and the history of some of our most beloved Christmas music. Next week, we're going to return to where we left off. So if you're new to the podcast, it's a great time to do some binge listening and get caught up. We started with the life of Jesus Christ, and we're all the way to the end of the Crusades now. But one more history of the carols. This song was never meant to be a Christmas song. It was actually meant to be an Easter song, or a group of songs, as you're going to see. And the story is really of three men, the writer, the composer, and a sea captain. Here we go. George was born in 1685. This was actually the same year the great composer Bach was born. They were a Protestant family. And at that time, all of the churches had organs and choirs. Now at age seven, George and his father visited the Holy Trinity Church. George was in awe of the beauty of the church and he asked if he could play the organ. The Duke agreed and little George sat down to play. Now, everyone was expecting childlike noise, but instead, beautiful music filled the church hall. The Duke told his father he must give George a musical education. So, George's father bought an organ for their home and found a music teacher. Frederick Zakow became his teacher. Now, Frederick had a drinking problem and was often not ready for church because he was too drunk. So, often he had George play for him at church. And soon, little George had taken over most of the church work. Then, in 1697, George's father died. This was very hard on young George, and he soon found himself bearing his grief in music. George went on to university and then traveled to Italy. And soon, he became a master at Italian opera. In 1710, Prince George of Germany had him create music for him. When Prince George became the king of Great Britain, he asked our musician friend George to move to London with him. He gave him a salary and a grand place to live. Soon George was living the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Many of his operas became famous. His shows were known for great set designs and costumes, and his music was unmatched. And here we start the story of our second man, Thomas Cram. In 1704, an uneducated sea captain landed in London, England. He'd begun working on ships at the age of 11 and had worked his way up to sea captain. Thomas had traveled to the New World and had lived for 10 years in Massachusetts owning and operating a shipyard. Now in his late 30s, he was returning to London. But what he saw that day changed his life forever. Walking through the streets, he was appalled at the number of street children. But it was when he found a small, frozen baby that he knew things needed to change. Thomas tried to save the little baby, but it was obvious the baby was dead and had been frozen for some time. However, as horrifying as this was, Thomas was even more horrified to find out that no one seemed to care or be surprised. It seemed that finding frozen babies was not out of the ordinary. As Thomas talked to more of his friends, 
he learned the stories of young ladies who would move to London after being told they would find jobs and husbands here. The wealthy men of London took advantage of these poor young girls, promising them marriage. However, once the girls were pregnant, the wealthy men would simply disappear, leaving the girls homeless and pregnant. These girls were often very young and would either abandon their babies to die in the cold or, once their babies died, leave them behind because they had no way to bury them. Around 1,000 babies a year were being abandoned to die in the streets of starvation and cold. Thomas knew that God wanted him to find a way to help these mothers and these babies. So he came up with an idea. He would start a hospital just for new babies, and mothers could bring their babies and leave them at the hospital where they would be cared for until the mothers were able to return and take care of them. But this would take money, and Thomas had to find a way to pay for it. So he went to the churches. I mean, that seemed like the obvious place to go. The churches were so large and had elaborate structures here in London. They had plenty of money, and if each of the churches shared just some of their money, they could easily be able to build his hospital. However, the churches were not interested. He was told such a place would only encourage girls to continue their bad behavior, and the church could not endorse such a thing. Not even a penny was given to Thomas. Thomas then went to the men of society, since many of them were the fathers of these babies that were dying. But none of the men would even see him. Then Thomas met a young lady, the Duchess of Somerset. She was only a young teenager herself and was married to a rich lord, in fact, the richest one in all of London. And she had just had a brand new baby herself. Thomas asked her for help. The young lady was very well known and because of her husband, had many connections. She agreed to help raise the money and put her name on the charity bill. Soon the money started to come in and the hospital was built. A movement was started called the Cult of Sensibility. It was the fashion of the day to show concern for the poor, especially the poor children. Meanwhile, our musician George was unmoved by this new Cult of Sensitivity. Even though he had lost his father at a young age, he was more concerned with problems he was facing in the theater. You see, it was 1718, and society was changing, and the Italian opera was not very popular anymore. People didn't want Italian, they wanted English. And soon George's shows stopped making money. George was used to living the high life. He was living in a borrowed castle, and he was friends with princes and lords and ladies. But... He was forced to move into a more modest home, and it looked like he was done. People thought he would just retire and live a modest life with the money he had earned. However, George started writing oratory or choir music. He didn't need grand costumes or sets anymore, and he made sure that his new music was in English. It was a restart of his career. George also decided to use biblical stories. These became popular, and before you knew it, his career was on the rise again. This brings us to our third man in our stories, Charles Jennings. Charles was a landowner and extremely wealthy. His entire life, anything he needed was provided for him, and everything that needed to be done was done for him. Now, Charles was an extremely serious person. He was the kind of guy who wanted to know the rules and then wanted every rule to be followed perfectly. He grew up with much time on his hands, and he was an avid reader and collector. He especially loved to collect art and music. 
He traveled in high society circles and was friends with great composers, such as our main character, George. Now, Charles was a Christian, and he took his Christianity as seriously as he took everything else in his life. Now, there was a movement growing in London called the Deist Movement. This was a movement that said, you don't need the Bible or Jesus to know God. We can know God and learn about God through science. Charles was so upset to see this belief growing amongst high society that he decided he would write an oratory for his friend George. His idea would be to write something so magnificent that all the eyes and hearts of high society would be turned back to Jesus. He imagined the oratory would be sung in a grand chapel. Charles took his Bible and began to copy out scripture. He started with the Old Testament and found every single verse that prophesied the life of Jesus. He then went to the New Testament and copied out every single verse about Jesus, right up until the book of Revelation. This was the blueprint. He then used these words he had written out as text and got to work writing his music. When he finished his oratory, he brought it to his friend George. He told George it was an oratory of the grandest theme in all of history, the Messiah himself. But as he started to explain the plot was in three parts, telling Jesus was coming and then the life of Jesus and then the return of Jesus, Jesus was the main character and also the only character in the oratory. However, Jesus had no lines. It was about him, but he never spoke. George wasn't interested. It sounded like one of Charles' silly ideas, but he took the oratory and put it on a shelf. A year and a half later, George was looking for ideas for a new oratory, and he took the oratory down from a shelf, dusted it off, and read the words. He began to write music. It was as if he was possessed. His hands could barely keep up with the music. It was as if it was writing itself. In only 24 days, he had written the music to the entire oratory. Jennings didn't know George was writing the oratory finally. When he learned the music had been written in just 24 days, he was angry. It seemed his friend didn't understand the magnitude or the beauty of the text, and he had clearly not put the effort in that it was worth. Then he learned that George had taken off to Dublin to put a choir together, and he was planning on performing it in a theater. Even more devastating, George was using Suzanne Kibber as his main female soloist. Suzanne was an adulterer. The press had been covering her horrible affair in great detail for some time. She was so despised by high society that the last place she was in was empty because no one respectable would ever be seen attending a play that Suzanne was in. Jennings wrote a letter to George telling him how angry he was. But while Jennings had all the facts correct, he didn't actually know the whole story. You see, George had been changed while writing the music of this great oratory. As he wrote one of the songs called Hallelujah Chorus, he had felt that suddenly he had been transported to heaven itself and that he had seen the throne of God. As his hand wrote the last note, he had fallen to the ground face down in tears. He was no longer looking for fame or fortune. And as he had finished up the music, his friend, the Duke of Devonshire, had written to him asking for help. You see, there was a problem in Ireland. There had been a famine and people were starving. And the worst situation of all was debtor's prison. Those people with debts were forced to work hard labor and people were starving to death in the prisons. He wanted to help the people get out of prisons, and he had an idea. 
If George could come and perform one of his operas or oratories in the theater and give the money from the show to pay off the debts of some of his prisoners, that would help so much. When George read the letter, he knew he had just the right oratory. And he also had the right soloist. You see, Susanna had been forced into a marriage at a very young age, and her husband had been abusive and stolen any money she got from her acting jobs. When she tried to hide her money in the theater, he had broken into the theater and stolen it. Susanna had fallen in love with another man, and the two had run off together. Her husband had come to the home with large men, taken her by force, and locked her up. She'd been rescued later by her brother. She returned to the man she was living with and gave birth to their little girl. But her husband had actually hid a spy in their closet and watched them at night. Then her husband took her to court and had his spy give detailed description of what he saw that night. And every horrible detail was printed in the papers. She was not seen as a woman escaping a forced, abusive marriage. She was portrayed as a prostitute. She was despised. And George knew that she needed the message of this new oratory more than any other woman in London. So he had her come with him to Dublin to perform. Now, she didn't read music, so George sat with her and taught her the entire oratory, line by line, until it was perfect. Next, George needed a choir. Now, the St. Patrick's Choir was the greatest choir in Ireland, but the head of the church, Jonathan Swift, was against it. He didn't think the music should be played outside of a church, and he was very opposed to Susanna being part of the performance. However, he was kind of pressured into it by a man named Patrick Denley, who was taking over the church. The theater was packed, and Susanna rose to sing. Theater was in awe, and Patrick Denley stood and called out, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven. Instead of doing just one performance, George stayed for months and continued to perform. He paid his musicians and singers, but he did not even take a penny for himself. Before he left, he had paid the debt of 150 prisoners, all freed and able to return home. And once he left, the choir continued to perform and pay for even more prisoners. By the time George returned to London, Jennings was no longer angry. He could see that while his plan of a great oratory sung in a grand chapel for the most elite was a great and grand plan, God's plan was so much better. In London, the oratory was played for the elite in the chapels as Jennings had imagined. It was met half-heartedly. People enjoyed the music, but there was not the heart change that had happened in Dublin. Now, there is a story of King George II attending the oratory, and as soon as the song Hallelujah Chorus started, the king stood in respect of the King of Kings. Now, the law was that if the king stood, everyone in the room had to stand as well, and so the tradition of standing for this song started. But it is unsure if this really happened or if it's just part of the mystique of this song. 
Meanwhile, Thomas was still working on his hospital, and in March 25, 1741, the doors opened and immediately every bed was filled. The mothers had to be turned away because there was just not enough room for all the babies. Unfortunately, many of the babies died in the hospital. They were already too sick to help. But with every bed that opened, hundreds of mothers were still waiting. The hospital was in desperate need for help. An artist in the area had started using the hall of the hospital as an art gallery with places for people to donate money for the hospital, making it the first open-to-the-public art gallery in the world. George decided he was going to hold a fundraiser in the hospital, and he had his grand oratory performed at the hospital. So many tickets were sold that women were told they could not wear hoop skirts because there would just not be enough room for all the people if they wore hoop skirts. It was so well received and the hospital raised enough money to keep its doors opened. George made the hospital the place the oratory would be performed. He never ever took even a single penny for the music and all of the money went to the poor, the debtors, prisoners, or orphans. George eventually went blind and had to stop conducting the music, but he continued to come and listen. The last performance he sat through was just eight days before he died. While George wrote many operas and oratories, it was just this one that would become world famous. George Frederick Handel died April 14, 1759. While the oratory is called Messiah, it is known by most people as Handel's Messiah. However, George Handel did not write his name on the music as most musicians do. He wrote instead, under the author, to the glory of God. Today, it is the most recognizable song in the world. It is sung worldwide, and it still touches hearts. Now, as Canadians, I need to add a little extra history about the orphans in London. More hospitals and orphanages were opened in London, and all of them were full and overcrowded. We're going to be talking about that later in our church history. But in 1872, a missionary named Dr. Thomas John Bernardo worked with the people of Canada to help solve the orphan problem in London. He asked the people of Canada to adopt the children of London. Full shiploads of children were brought to Canada, where families waited at the shipyards to meet their new children. The first shipment of children was in 1862, and the last shipment was in 1930. In total, Canadian families adopted over 100,000 children from the streets of London. And today in Canada, about one out of every 10 Canadians are offsprings of one of these children. September 28th is marked on our calendar as a day to honor these children. I hope you enjoyed this story of Handel's Messiah. It is probably my favorite choir music. I so much enjoyed learning the history of how this music changed Handel, and I hope that it changes you as well. I will see you in the new year when we will continue more church history.